Thursday finance. And uh, before we look at commodities, Stephen Pritchard, energy prices, what's happening? Well, energy prices are again in the news because uh, the energy companies increased them again on the 1st of July. And the minister, of course, in New South Wales, any ministers come out with the usual uh, thing, you know. But they're not actually doing anything. The, the, the solution is the minister has to introduce regulation to, to limit the amount of profits that the energy companies are doing. This is what used to be the case when it was the Newcastle Gas Company and the AGL. Um, previously, there was a limit on how much money they could have, what the return on capital is. And you've got the case now that we're paying three and four times the world level for kilowatts. Three or four times. Three and four times. It's a third the price in Iowa. And and you've got AGL shares at record prices and you've got Energy Australia doubling the prices and doubling their profits and, and the ministers are sitting back, you know, basically saying a lot of words but not, not doing anything. I mean, this is this is all flowing through to industry now and, and the cost of business and industry is going up and making those industries uncompetitive. So, you know, they need to stop talking, start introducing legislation and the easiest way is to limit the return on capital that, that these companies are making. Is that easily done? Easily. The state can pass legislation on anything it wants. <laughs> Right, go to it, Polly's. Well, I mean, you know, it's not going to be popular with AGL or Energy Australia, but the fact is, you know, Energy Australia's profits doubled in the last twelve months, mm. and you know, you know, they have to ask. We have to ask, why is our energy prices three and four times what's being sold in the in the US in the state of Iowa, and the inputs are basically the same, and they can't blame renewable energies because in the state of Iowa, fifty percent of the energy supplied is coming from renewables. So you can't trot that excuse out. You know what they really need to do is a proper analysis on a line by line and work out exactly where the costs are in the system or and all the profits. What's right, so the next time you're talking to your local poly? Oh, you need to. Your question. local polys need to do something. You yeah. know, they're, they're they're sitting back, yeah, saying the words, but nothing's happening. In the meantime, what's happening with commodities? Uh, the commodity markets, well, they're interesting. Um, the the gold price was up one point two eight percent on the week to sixteen hundred and twenty six dollars. Um, the copper price was pretty much steady at eight thousand two hundred and seventy seven, and the crude oil price was sixty six dollars and thirty six cents a barrel, which is up four percent. Um, the the US dollar, um, we're we're up. Again, seventy nine point one one up to point up point three two percent. The Great British Pound we're up almost one percent on that to sixty one point seven nine, and the Euro we were down about half a percent to sixty six point nine five euro cents. Um, the equity markets were, were mainly a bit subdued down the, around the world. Um, Australia, the All Ordinaries was down half a percent on the week to 5,792. Um, the S&P, which is a major US index, was down half a percent to 2,441. And the US was down about uh, 0.7 to 7,382. Mm-hmm. Um, some local stocks that investors are interested in or stocks that locally investors are interested in rather. Um, the uh, BHP was up 0.4 to it's $26.04. Um, CBA is continuing to drift uh, downwards down another 1.6 to 78.7, and NIB was down 5% to $5.73. And Telstra, uh, Telstra continues to drift away uh, down to $3.91 or 1.0% down on the week. Mm. Uh, the fuel prices, um, and actually I found out we get the fuel prices from the Australian Petroleum Institute, not in an RMA, so that's interesting. Oh, okay. um, I had a look at it this morning, 
found where Dominic was getting them from. Um, so, so the price in Newcastle is a, a one dollar twenty-eight a litre, which is up four point eight percent on the week. And in Sydney, it's a dollar twenty-four a litre, which was down one point seven. And the diesel price was one dollar twenty-six a litre in Newcastle and one dollar twenty-three in Sydney. So Newcastle fuel prices is up four percent. There's no holidays coming up, is there? We have Henry Jennings with us from the Marcus Today Financial Newsletter because it is time for our market update. Stephen Pritchard and Henry. Stephen, how are you? I'm good, Henry, and you're well, I assume? I'm very well. Very well, like always. Um, But things aren't so well at CBA, I hear? (laughs) Well, no, they've been, well, I mean, their troubles are coming in battalions uh, at the moment, but uh, the latest woe for them is connected to the Oztrack scandal um, and Maurice Blackburn and IMF, those famed ambulance chasers, um, are uh, asking shareholders to join in a class action against CBA on the basis that they didn't um, disclose that Oztrack were looking into some of their um, um, their intelligent deposit machine transactions. So, um, yeah, it's just another kind of downer for um, for CBA. Um, clearly, they're in um, transition, I guess. You've got uh, a change in management. You've got a change in um, uh, a chairman and a change in uh, CEO as well on the cards for 2018. So um, it's possible we may see some out- underperformance in CBA in the short term as this all kind of gets resolved. It's, it's unclear as to what the penalties are going to be from, from regulators on the money laundering issue, um, whether they're going to be draconian or whether they're going to be somewhat less. Um, but obviously, uh, Morris Blackburn and IMF have decided that that's, um, it's worth going for, um, and we'll see how successful they are. I mean, the real problem I personally have with these class actions by shareholders against, say, CBA is one example, is really money just kind of come out of the shareholders' own pocket, and the, the class action yeah. needs to be against the, the management. I mean, they're, they're the ones who, who, who failed the, the, the shareholders. It's not the company itself. I guess, and the board, um, who are the ones that are ultimately responsible for reporting these breaches of, uh, of mm. regulations to the uh, to the regulators. And if if they failed in their duties, then maybe that's a better target. As you say, shareholders suing themselves. Effectively, that's the, what happens. The only yeah, well, exactly. The only people that are going to win is guess who? Um, um, the lawyers. Yeah, that's right. That's mm. right. Right. And so what's happening down at HealthScope? It's, it's, it looks Not a much. bit sick as well. <laughs> well, HealthScope put in some pretty, um, pretty nasty uh, results yesterday. It was, uh, was part of um, some one-off items, but the stock price did, uh, did tumble like a, um, like a rock, really. Um, the, the figures weren't particularly good, but what really kind of upset the market was the outlook. And um, certainly the outlook is not good for um, healthcare providers. I guess the market's fallen in love with this this narrative. And we, I wrote about this this morning in the newsletter. Um, you know, we fall in love with this narrative about the aging population, and we all want healthier outcomes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the, but the reality is that governments can't afford it, and the governments are, are, are pressing uh, on margins. And you know, we're seeing that with HealthScope, the margins are under pressure. They've got lower occupancy rates in their private hospitals um, and you know they're building this massive new uh, private hospital come public hospital on the north shore of Sydney um, near French's well, French's Forest it's going to take over the suburb just about it's, it's massive so there is some risk here um, there is a possibility they may need to raise some capital 
Um, but certainly looking at the outlook, it's not that flash. And the stock dropped like a rock yesterday. It was $2.20 before the announcement of the results, and now it's under $1.80. So, um, and it has been a, a, a horrible spiral down since um, private equity floated this off um, to poor, unsuspecting punters uh, some time ago. So um, all is certainly not well with, uh, with health care, and there are some pressures on the system in terms of that margin compression. Mm. And then Woolworths. Woolworths, uh, Woolworths is, uh, profit profit um, was three point was up three point six to one point four two billion. Yeah, gotta say I think Woolies is expensive, um, and it's. I, I was talking on TV yesterday about how it's a bit like whack a mole, mm-hmm. and that, that every time they seem to fix a problem, um, another one appears. But I guess in the case of their biggest problem is Big W. Um, that's been a mole problem for some time. Um, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. The business lost 150 million bucks, um, deep discounting, um, and it really is um, an issue for them. The rest of the business is going well-ish. Um, they've certainly taken the fight to Coles, and they spent a billion dollars on, uh, I guess, subsidising uh, everyday low prices to try and win back customers. But Big W is a big issue for them, and you know, I. I questioned uh, on TV yesterday whether Australia, with only 25 million people, can really support three discount department stores with Big W, Target and um, and Kmart. Kmart's doing very well, but Target is a bit of a dog mm-hmm. as well. And Big W is a, is a dog, and I'm not sure with the, the population we have, given the growth of Costco and Aldi and online sales, etc., whether we can really um, sustain three of these big stores but uh, for, for Woolies the problem is getting cutting the business a lot of people would like to see them cut Big W completely but they have got you know 10 year leases on, uh, yeah, yeah. on on big sites and that will cost them billions of dollars to uh, to, to unwind uh, they did the same with Masters and uh, the market rewarded them for getting out of Masters but um, you know Big W has been a constant drain on the business and, and consumes I would imagine a lot of management time and effort um, so, so APA, the, the gas pipeline infrastructure people, yep. their profit was up 32% for the year? Yeah, it was good. It was a relatively solid result. Um, nothing too uh, out of the ordinary. I think the market was relatively happy with it. The stock has been under some pressure recently, I guess, uh, on the back of the fact that you know, uh, rising interest rates do tend to dent uh, what they call the so-called bond proxy stocks, things like uh, APA and uh, Transurb and Sydney Airport. They're all uh, got a lot of debt, and uh, rising rates do do hurt them. But the result was pretty good. Net profit was up 32 percent, 236 million. You know, the, the um, distribution was okay. Everything was um, everything was okay, but um, nothing nothing spectacular. Which I guess is, you know, what you what, what we should expect from what is a utility business yeah. pumping gas through a a big pipe in the ground. Yes, and and BHP BHP's result was up five times as well, and triples <laughs> yeah, their dividend. Yeah, BHP came back from the dead. That just shows you, I guess, the uh, the leverage these resource companies have got to uh, to commodity prices. Um, BHP had a, a stellar result, a little bit underwhelming compared to what analysts were going for. But the important thing is that BHP seems to be listening, although they deny that they're listening. Um, they, if uh, listeners will remember, there's a, a, a U.S. hedge fund called Elliott Advisors who has been agitating for change. Uh, and one of the changes they want to see happen is the sell-off of the shale gas business in the U.S. 
Now, BHP are now uh, undertaking uh, a process to look at selling off that shale asset business in the U.S., which has got nothing to do with Elliott Advisors, according to BHP. They were thinking about doing it for so long anyway. Um, so that's, that's um, uh, BHP is, has listened, but it's not admitting that they're listening. But uh, the market likes the fact that they're looking at those assets. Um, they also like the fact there's a new kid in town as far as the chairman goes. Um, and uh, they've listened as well with Grant King, who was um, not particularly popular as a, as a board member of BHP, uh, seeking uh, not to be re-elected to the board. So there was some good news from BHP, and the outlook was also optimistic from uh, CEO Andrew McKenzie. So the uh, market liked it, and commodity prices keep going up, so that's good for BHP. And another stock that market liked was Northern Star? Um, yeah, Northern Star. I mean, it's a gold stock. Um, Northern Star is a bit of a quality, uh, a quality stock. Um, but yeah, the figures were okay, and um, yeah, nothing wrong with Northern Star. The, the, the um, obviously gold in these kind of uh, heightened times of risk and geopolitical tension has been quite popular. But Northern Star's got a pretty good business in that Paulson's gold mining uh, business in Western Australia, uh, and the share price is uh, riding high on the back of those results. So good news for them. And, of course, as, as, as we suggested might happen, or as you suggested might happen on a previous show, uh, uh, private equity has walked away from Vocus Communications. It has. Um, <laughs> poor old Vocus. Um, it has the private equity. There were two bids on the table around $3.50. Um, both of them have said, nah, you know what, we can't be bothered. Um, they've kicked the tyres. They've had a look at due diligence. And they've decided to walk away. The share price has dropped from uh, uh, around sort of that three twenty, three thirty level to two dollars fifty. The results have come out. They had to uh, write off uh, another big impairment. Um, so it's you know it's it's just unfortunately that these businesses, these roll up businesses, when they put them all together. Um, it's really good when you've got momentum going with you, but at some stage you do have to integrate systems, you do have to integrate cultures, you've got brand management, and it's quite easy to, uh, to slip up. And the market is unforgiving when, uh, when you do, and uh, Vocus have obviously uh, slipped in a big way, and, and those two guys walking away is, is I guess, a sign that uh, things are still not really fully on track at Vocus. Yeah, I had a quick look at the balance sheet, and there's a huge amount of goodwill there. Oh, yeah. Huge oh, yeah. So, well, that's, that's the thing. You know, you buy these, these companies for an expensive price, and even though, let's just say, you buy them for a multiple of eight and the market's trading your stock at 14, so there's immediately an uplift. So you're kind of doing that arbitrage. But if, if the purchase at eight is actually only worth four, then at some stage you're going to have to take a big impairment charge. And, of course, they call it non-cash mm-hmm. um, and not, uh, not significant and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it just shows that they've just paid the wrong price for stuff. And, um, you know, companies are forever seem to be doing it. You know, mm-hmm. they, just, they build stuff that costs them too much or they, uh, or they pay too much for, for stuff. It's just, uh, you know, but management still seem to get their bonuses and get very well paid. Yes, and speaking of that, Murray Goulburn, the previous management got bonuses and now the, the, the company says it's looking for proposals from third parties, whatever that might mean. Yeah, I think the proposals are to try and get them out of the, uh, out of the, the, the doggy do because uh, this, is, this is a company that's going backwards. They've got farmers leaving them because the, the farm milk gate price that they're giving their farmers is lower than uh, Fonterra. Um, I think they're uh, currently they, they get about 2 billion uh, litres of, uh, of milk a year, which now Fonterra uh, has got the same. So uh, Murray Goldburn's going backwards. Some of those farmers are leaving to go to Fonterra because they pay higher prices. And you would imagine that the, the outlook for Murray Goldburn is a little bleak. 
I have to say, and it's um, you know the new management is doing what they can, but it's it's not good, and unfortunately for the poor old farmers, the ones that suffer, you have to spare a thought if you were supplying A2 milk. Uh, with uh, with milk, you'd be doing very well. The stock prices are just continuing to go to record highs. Um, I guess it just shows that if you've got a um, a unique product that you can sell rather than generic product, uh, that you can do things. But uh, yeah, it's it's a strange it's a strange world. There's lots of milk around, but there seems to be a butter shortage for some reason, and butter seems to be going uh, going up. So I'm, I'm I'm a bit puzzled about that one. Anyhow, so you've got a unique product to sell there, haven't you, haven't you at, at, at Marcus today? <laughs> um, we, we have, yes. So if, if uh, anyone wants free to... Free trial, you're uh, talking uh, about. The free, free trial. trial. Anyone the wants free to, uh, trial. Have right? a free trial, which is something that most of our um, federal members should have on their citizenship thing. They can sign up to uh, marcustoday.com.au. <laughs> do you ask, uh, do you ask you're a dual citizen, do you? I have to admit, Stephen, I am a dual citizen. Oh. I still have a, a British passport and I have an Australian passport. So. But, but you're not standing for Parliament, though. No, that's the one thing holding me back. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you next week, Henry. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. Thank you, Henry Jennings, Senior Consultant with the Marcus Today Financial Newsletter. An interesting story. Yeah, we've got an interesting story with Leah, both both in her business, which I've, I've personally used for a long time, and I know a number of my clients have, and, and her latest adventure in, in climbing Mount, Interest, Mount Everest. And I thought we'd just talk today about why did you start the, the Leah J property management business? Um, Steve and I started Leah J 23 years ago now, and primarily I had a passion for property and people at the time, and thankfully I still do. But it was um, I was working in real estate, and I could I just got the sense back then that there was a little shift, and we could do a lot better for owners, tenants in that area as a, as a specialist area to move it out of real estate, so to speak. Yeah. Right, and so. You had this passion, to, and you started that led to starting that Leah J property management business. Yeah. So, what was the reason you decided to climb Mount Everest when you'd never? I assume you'd never been there before. I'd never been to Mount Everest, and I'd but I'd been fascinated for years, and I had no clue how how mountain climbing worked. So, but and I dedicated like fifteen years to to the business, and um, anybody with the business knows the focus that takes. So, I set aside set in sight a goal to climb Mount Everest after my son died back in 2008 and that was the the catalyst that kicked it all off so to speak. So you'd never even done any mountain climbing before? Nothing. I was working, 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 sitting on the couch, not exercising, did nothing, Um, very, very little exercise. It just goes to show what you can do when you set your mind to it. So you decided to to start in 2008 decided to climb Mount Everest in 2008? It was a little seed in the back of my mind. I never, it was just this way distant dream, never really thinking that it would crystallise. And what I actually did was just started doing, actually started walking first. I got out, started walking, started enjoying nature, bushwalks, all that sort of thing. Then I would push myself a little bit further and I would do, I went and um, trek Kokoda. Right. Then I went and climbed Kilimanjaro in uh, South Africa and lots of little outdoor treks. So enjoyed that sort of thing, which spurred me on, I guess, each time. Right. So there, when you started your business, was there a lot of planning involved in that? Yeah. So what I've realised since um, since summiting Everest back in May of this year, it's parallel. So I think that's why I've enjoyed the journey and the process of the climb, because it's it really it's very similar. Um, you, there's so much planning, researching, planning, training, um, looking for mentors, um, 
and really focusing on the job that you're doing. And to climb a mountain like Everest is that's what it takes. And to build a successful business, that's what it takes. It takes teamwork as well. So you mentioned mentors and help. How did you find someone to help you climb Mount Everest? I mean, there's lots of people who can help you start a business. But how did you find someone to help you climb Mount Everest? Well, that's true. Fortunately, um, in our local area, there is a guy, his name is, um, is Gavin. And Gavin lives up at Thornton and he summited Mount Everest back in 2010 and um, local guy and when that was announced back then I hooked on to Gavin through a friend and would just touch base with him maybe just once or twice a year and he instilled in me a bit of a belief that if you he mentored me along the way basically yeah so I had my own little mentor locally okay okay so the planning um, so what was actually involved in the planning okay so um to there's a lot of like personal planning as in fitness is number mm-hmm. one so you have to be in the most physical fit condition you can be in your life so a lot of planning for your fitness a lot of planning for logistics um selecting who you're going to go and climb that mountain with um a lot of mental work and preparation as in planning and then of course when you're leaving a business it's a lot of planning and life planning because as you know with Everest it's um one of those things, hopefully you're going to come back, but there is a risk that you may not. So a lot of that sort of, loads of planning. So we might just come back after a break and talk a bit more about planning and how, what you did to run the business while you're away. Okay. Talking with Leah J. So there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot of planning in climbing Mount Everest, and I suppose it's the same as a business. I, mean, and I was just saying in the break that I remember when you had one person office down in Beaumont Street there, and so that's grown over 23 years to, what, three offices now? Uh, four offices. Four offices. Yep. One I've missed. That's all right. And, and how many people? 57, 57 to 60 at any one time. So it yep. takes a lot of work to, to keep that business running. It certainly does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what, so, and, and a lot of it revolves around you from my experience. Yes, um, it used to. And I guess probably that's um, the key to a successful business. So, um, mentioned earlier work for 15 to 17 years full on all the time and I still work um, very heavily in the business but I'm surrounded now which um, gives me great enjoyment to see the team of people around me and that was the aim to be able to get to a stage it wasn't actually so that I could go and climb Everest but that we could get to a stage so that other people were empowered to get some enjoyment and some uh, success themselves out of out of the business so was putting plans in place when you grow a business um, to make sure that all that happens. And so you put plans in place to 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 get to um, climb Mount Everest. So did you have did you have steps on that? Like you'd have steps in the business. You know, we've got we, we we're going to get the first staff, so usually the hardest or the second staff. So was there steps in? You know, I'm going to get to I'm going to leave Australia or yeah, get on that there plane. Are. There, or... So there are steps about, um, first of all, your fitness and making sure you've got that checked. There are fitness about your mental preparation because that is just equally important. Um, and I think when you're on the mountain, more important than your physical um, fitness. There's also steps about your gear. So you think about the logistics. You're going and you're going to be living at 5,500 metres in a tent for six weeks. You've got to have, and you're trekking into that base camp, so you've got to have gear for trekking, and then you've got to have gear for when you're living there for six weeks, and then gear for climbing the mountain. So there's like three different stages there. Um, it's your flights, um, getting into into and out of Nepal. That's not too bad, but those little things. Um, so how did you put the, like, 
how did you put the team together? Okay, so these days um, there are commercial operators. Right. So I um, chose to go with a commercial operator uh, based out of uh, New Zealand and they they take care of all the logistics for you. So you sign up with them, they, they assist you and you really don't have to worry too much until you actually get to... We don't worry about too much at all. They take care of getting... Once you get to Kathmandu, they get all your gear to base camp and look after that sort of thing. So logistics, fine, and team, it's all done, and you meet people when you when you get there. But you go... It's like the Big Brother house. You don't right. know anybody. Right. You go in there and you meet all these new people. So you didn't take anyone with you? No, I, I didn't know... I did know one young lady on the team who I'd met when I was climbing another mountain, but apart from that, there were nine of us, um, climbers we were called, and I didn't know any of them. Ranges of personalities. Yeah, that, that, that'd be another step in the dark. It's there, another it? thing. It's all there's, so there's so much putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Like that's and different people from all different around around the world. We were a team of nine to start with, and there were five uh, five males and four females. Yeah. So. And so, how many got to the to the summit? Four. And females or males? Ah. Uh, Actually, three got to the summit. Yes. Two females and one male. So anyone. It's, and it's not the a other female uh, got near the summit but had to, had to turn back. Yeah. Oh. Ex- um, I, issues I with her oxygen bottle. I yeah. couldn't think of anything worse than doing that. You could do it, Stephen. No, no, I mean getting. <laughs> oh, getting close. Yeah, it was. Yeah, for her at the time, that's another experience. So at the time, she handled it very, very well for the first 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Then when she got back to base camp, it was like, well, what went on up there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She signed up to go back next year. Ah, okay, yeah. okay. So so one of the things that's, that, I, that, that I find in our business that's very important with people to succeed is you have to persist at doing things. You know, a lot of people, you know, they'll do things for a week or even sometimes just a couple of days and it doesn't work and they say, oh, yeah. it's not working. You know, have you found that? Hundred percent. That's in business and in in climbing. So it's perseverance and it's resilience, and it's routine. So nothing comes overnight. You actually have to dedicate yourself, and sometimes put in years and years of work, and training, and repetitive, boring stuff. And it's not always brilliant, and it's not always happy, and it's not always wonderful. You've got to ride those times out and understand that in business and in climbing, and in life, that's just how it is. But if you can get through those things, the rewards will generally come, but it's not overnight. Climbing Everest takes six to eight weeks. So you, it was in the back of your brain in 2008. So yeah. when did you actually make the decision you were actually going to do it? Uh, probably two years ago. So it, for, Firmly. And then in November last year, I just went, okay, next year. Ah, so was that quick? Was that quick? You just decided. I just went, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. I'd been training. Yeah, yeah. Mentally, physically, yeah. Okay, so so so, what was the most satisfying thing about establishing your own business? Um, at for now, um, it's actually seeing the involvement the business has in the community. I think it's for what we can contribute. So the employment that we create, not just with the people that work for us, but the little industries and businesses that rely on our company, and for being able to look after owners' investments and to house house people, I get great enjoyment out of that. That's good. And what about climbing Mount Everest? Climbing Mount Everest, there are so many facets. It's not just the summit that is amazing. Um, it's there's way too much in that to put it into into really simple words. It's just something I think about 
and amaze myself every day. So do you have any regrets about starting your own business? Some days I did. Yes. And some days I still do, and that's the truth, but not at all. No, not at all. And climbing the mountain? Same thing. When I got to base camp, I sat there and regretted it for about a couple of hours, and what have I got myself into, and then pulled my socks up and got on with it, but not at all. And so where's the next adventure? Maybe Mars. I'm kidding. No, I don't know. <laughs> Mars sounds like the, plan, the way to go. Thank you very much, Leah Thanks, J. Leah. From Leah J. Property Management. Thank you, Stephen Pritchard. You can catch this program on podcast on 2NURFM.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.